Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Listeners, you can now support the continued growth of this show. Go to glow.fm slash e2. That's glow.fm slash e2 if you're interested. If you enjoy the content we're putting out here and our show is part of your podcast routine, we certainly appreciate you checking that out. On today's episode, we're speaking with Leslie Vinets, a corporate sales training and sales-led go-to-market expert. She's made over 100,000 cold calls, has authored a book called Heels to Deals, and is now running Sales Team Builder, which continues to grow and build on her expertise. In this one, we dive into the best strategies for cold outbound, how to set up your communication sequences for optimal success, certain tools and systems for gathering amazing data on the cheap, and in a rapid-fire round, why SoulCycle and Leslie's opinion is so much better than Peloton. So stay tuned for that. With that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is Leslie Vinets. Let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. So you're now running Sales Team Builder, but you spent 15 years in the corporate world before jumping into your own thing. So we have a lot of listeners still working for someone else, let's say, but they want to take this leap. How did you know it was the right time? I never imagined that I would be a full-time entrepreneur. It was not something I aspired to or felt called to. I started Sales Team Builder as a passion project, as a side hustle, but never with the intent of making it my full-time gig. I had been employee number one at a startup which is insane. Not, I would never do that again or recommend it to anybody. And my job was to create and launch the MVP, the minimum viable product at that organization. And having done that and rolled out a very successful GTM and growing the company from zero to a million really fast, I thought, oh, if I can do that for those people, I sure can do it for myself. I might as well have an LLC sitting on this. So I have it. But when did I know it was right? That was a very emotional versus financial decision, which is maybe not like the the right advice to give people. But for me, because it wasn't something that I aspired to in chasing, I got to a point in my career where I realized it didn't feel right. It didn't feel exciting for me to continue to make money for other people when I could be just doing it for myself with a lot more control over my time, the types of clients I worked with, the type of work I did. 
And that is what finally pushed me over the line to bet on myself and commit to being a full-time founder. And it's been an interesting ride. I mean, you're north of five years at this point. Congrats. Thank you. 18 months full-time. 18 months full-time. Well, you're probably on your way to never going back to the corporate world. That's what tends to happen when you've got product market fit and you experience the freedom that is entrepreneurship. But you also say that you don't plan to scale this business. Why do you say that? Yeah, it's very intentionally a solopreneur business. And, you know, I think when we talk about scale, we immediately think of scaling headcount, becoming an employer, growing the company. So it's not that I don't plan to scale profit margins or revenue. I just don't want to have full-time employees. I think a huge part of that is that I spent 15 years as a people leader, and it's really hard. So part of it is that I realized that just because I can do something, just because I'm good at something, doesn't mean I have to do it. I work with a ton of freelancers, generally working with about seven to 10 freelancers at any given time. So it also gives me the freedom to work with folks that have serious domain expertise versus trying to find one person that can wear all of the hats. So there are some serious benefits to that. Um, But the real reason is that I run a six-figure agency working a four-day work week. I don't have to worry about anybody else's financial security. It makes it hard to imagine ever going back. What was the difference between how you were operating as an employee in the corporate world versus this four-day work week you have now? I think the difference was mindset-wise that I am somebody that has always identified my worth with my job, which is, I think, you know, it's a very common sort of like elder millennial or Gen X boomer sort of thing. As a result, I worked way more than I probably should have. I burned out three separate times. And instead of taking that as a cue that maybe I should dial it back, I would just go in harder because I had it set in my mind that my end goal was that chief revenue officer title, you know, the half million dollar or like I had all these external goals that were very tied to validation from the broader world, validation from my peers in the industry. What I realized and one of the things that made me feel excited about entrepreneurship is that I didn't need that anymore. The the things that really mattered to me were freedom and owning my time and having more opportunities to be with my family. On a day-to-day basis, it just looks like way better boundaries. Burnout's an important topic. You said you burnt out three times. For you, what was that experience like? They were each a bit different But the root of all of them was just this tremendous sense of overwhelm where little things that absolutely should not push me to a breaking point were too much to handle. And I think that that sense of overwhelm is a common one. Like that's the root that there's just so much weighing on you and work that it's hard to be present and enjoy life outside of work. Yeah, I think that's one of the big fears with entrepreneurship is people are afraid to take that leap because for some reason they associate burnout or overwhelm with the startup experience. And it seems to me that your experience is kind of the exact opposite of this. And I mean, we see it more and more with founders just wanting a better balance in their life and taking a leap for that reason. And I think now is almost 
there's sort of never been a better time to start your own business. And, you know, the data suggests that market slowdowns, pseudo recessions are actually fantastic times to take the leap. So encourage everybody who's got an idea and is sort of feeling that intuition to jump at this point. So I want to dive into sales team builder in a bit more detail. So you have an incredible background in sales. It's clear. 100,000 plus cold calls over your career, 15 years plus experience, a top LinkedIn influencer in this regard. So congrats on all of those accolades. But sales team builder as a company, like who is the target customer? What are they wrestling with and how do you help them solve this problem? They're going to be organizations like Base Foundation. I'm coming in at 10 million and 10 plus reps. So they're organizations that have a sales team and they have reached a point where maybe they were predominantly focused on inbound and that's starting to dry up and they're realizing that to keep growing, they need to figure out how to do outbound or they were doing outbound, but it was all over the place and they realized they need to get it right. I work with a lot of organizations that are going through M&A activities, so it's some change management pieces, but the course, something is broken with their outbound. In order to scale, they know that they need to be actively pursuing ideal customers and they don't know where to start. So I can come in, diagnose, create those repeatable processes, and then upskill the team to execute against them. If you were advising a B2B startup and the challenge was related to how best to build a funnel and subsequently close new enterprise clients, where should they start and what tactics and or strategies would you suggest they use that are effective? Depends what seed stage they are. Mm -hmm. Depends how advanced they are. But if we're talking earlier stage. So the number one piece of advice that I would give is stop thinking about how to penetrate your entire town. Start thinking about who your ideal persona is and be a bit more intentional, a bit more strategic about starting fewer conversations, but with more of the right people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are the biggest mistakes you see these teams doing in practice? Biggest mistakes are following best practice. And for folks that are maybe listening, not here or not watching, I'm using big air quotes there. There's so much bad advice online, like so just so much bad advice. And what's really tricky is that a lot of the advice you're seeing online intuitively makes sense. A perfect example is the starting an email with I hope you're well. (laughs) You're like, well, why wouldn't I do that? Like, I'm a nice person. I, I want them to know that I'm a nice person and that I hope they're well. So it, intuitively, it, like, of, of course, that shouldn't be that big of an issue. But if you look at the data, wasting your preview text, wasting the beginning of your email on something that is such a false platitude decimates open rates. If you're not getting your emails open, you're not getting them read or replied to. So I would encourage folks to second guess or at least put like a critical eye on what is best practice feedback because anybody can get on the internet and give you advice. Make sure that you're taking advice from experts that have actually done the jobs 
and that that advice is meant for you. Because if you're a PLG or maybe what I'm saying as somebody that focuses on penetrating mid-market to enterprise accounts, maybe that advice isn't for you. So I would say that is a really, really big one. And I would say the other piece, Adam, is the repeatability. Folks automatically skip to scale. And that speaks back to, oh, I have to scale and reach 5,000 people. You don't. And there is absolutely no way to scale, to build a durable model that can continue to scale maybe past year one or two without repeatable processes. And folks just skip right over the repeatability. So take the time to build those SOPs, to build sequences that are robust. That's going to be what allows long-term growth. I want to double click on the sequencing thing for a moment. So the I hope you're well doesn't work, decimates open rates, as you say. There's probably rules and or best practices, no air quotes here, related to subject lines. Could you just advise some alternatives to using I hope you're well? something else that might be effective and perhaps what people are doing on the subject line side of things that could be effective at moving the needle on open rates. Yeah, absolutely. Two really easy to action tips. One, subject lines that are performing best right now are two words. Both words are capitalized. Never go over five words. So preview texts are those 30 to 80 characters that show up when somebody has your email on their phone or maybe on their Outlook, but they haven't opened it. It's just that little bit of text that you can see that helps you decide whether or not the email is worth opening. So optimize for that entire preview text. If you stop at just a subject line, it doesn't matter how good it is. It's not going to get you the results you need. If you have an amazing subject line and then start your email with, I hope you're well, which tells them absolutely nothing about why they should open an email, you're not going to get the open rates you want. So really think about saying something in those first words of an email that matters to the person opening it, matters being it's either relevant to them or it's valuable to them. Yeah, that makes sense. For the sequencing thing, so... I think a lot of people don't necessarily know how to craft a welcome series or a customer nurture series. And there's lots of questions and different feedback related to how many emails should be in a sequence before someone replies. And then, of course, you intercept that sequence and begin that conversation with that prospect. So what are some rules of thumb in terms of how many email follow-ups you should send? And by extension, what should be the gap in between that first email, that second, that third email, what is the right time frame to reach out? So we're talking cold outbound. Let me remind you that anybody that didn't explicitly ask you to contact them to talk about your product is cold outbound. So there's a lot of like, this is warm outbound. No, it isn't. It's just cold outbound done, strategically done properly. So if they aren't expecting you to reach out, they didn't ask you to reach out. It's cold, easy rule of thumb is that the more senior somebody is, the more spaced out you want that communication. Then the more junior somebody is, the tighter you can have that that communication. What I love to do to start every single one of my sequences, regardless of seniority level or regardless of organization size, is start with a double tap. And so what that's going to look like is maybe a phone call and an email 
So the email is going to be something that is relevant to them, that is value-based. And then I'm going to follow up with a phone call that same day. And the phone call is going to point back to the email if they don't answer. So most people aren't, we're not going to reach everybody we call. Actually, we're probably only going to reach about four in every 100 people we call. So assume you're heading into voicemails 96 out of 100 times. Be ready to leave a well-crafted voicemail that points people back to your email. So you're sort of creating a little flywheel. It could also look like a, if you're on LinkedIn, could look like a connect message and an in-mail double tap. How do you penetrate that Fortune 500 C-suite? And what are the most effective tools for finding, say, key C-suite contact info? That's shockingly easy. There are so many good tools out there for finding content. And I'm not going to name drop. I'm not going to name drop any brands. But there are to like buy the data, buy good data. If there is something that is worth investing in, even if you are very early stage, it is the data. Because the amount of time that it's going to take an FTE headcount to go and find that information, they can have an entire list, tailored data. Particularly, a lot of tools now include buyer intent data for free. Buy the data. Don't waste time having one of your FTE do it when they can be focused on something more strategic. But then once you have the data, what do you do with it? Step one, filter it down to make sure you're not going after every single person that could potentially buy from you. So by building in those additional layers, you can create scalable copy where you don't have to hyper personalize every single bit of outreach. And maybe your list is only 38 people long, 52 people long, right? Like it's going to be a much smaller list, but you could send the same exact messaging to all 38 of those people because you have segmented your ICP down enough that you have a high degree of confidence that the message you're sending them is relevant and it allows you to make the right value drops, the right calls to value that matter to them. For these Fortune 500 C-suite executives, let's just stay on this for a moment. Yeah. Um, do you find that they are more likely to respond to a phone voicemail than they are to an email or vice versa? And or is there another channel that C-level executives seem to be responding to nowadays? Anecdotally, and then the data also like resoundly backs this up, phone calls still work extraordinarily well. So we see a lot of data that's coming out that folks that are, I want to say it was... 50 plus or like 55 plus prefer a phone call as a first point of contact. So I think something that we get wrong very often is that we center the type of outreach we want to do on the type of outreach we would want to receive. And we don't think about the type of outreach that the prospect we're reaching out to wants to receive. So if you are penetrating folks that are at that 50 age range plus, you need to have phone calls in your sequences and your your outreach cadence. With that being said, your best approach is always going to be multi-channel. So three channels is the minimum that I recommend. And predominantly that is phone calls, email, and social. So usually it's LinkedIn for, for my clients. If you are not going to do three channels, maybe you're just going to do, say, phone and email, I do really encourage you to get creative in how you're leveraging each of those channels. So if it's phone, make sure it's not just phone calls. You're also leaving voicemails. Maybe you're including text messages. If it is email, make sure it's not just all like text-only emails. 
maybe A, B test, putting a video in Hmm. or maybe get really crazy and A, B test, putting like a GIF in or something. Because if those are the only channels you're using, you really need to dial in on what gets the best penetration on those channels. So test some of those pattern interrupt things like video, like GIFs, like text message to see if that works for your particular prospect pool. I agree with you. The importance of buying this data to make sure it's relevant and up to date is so critical. Assuming the startup is bootstrapping, they don't have venture capital, they don't have a lot of dollars to play with, and they are reluctant to spend, say, 15, 20K a year on like a Zoom info, for example. How could they best get this data? Are there some tools that are really cost effective that you've seen? I will name one tool that is a good option for early stage companies. It's what I recommend to all of my clients who are getting started because it's also a sales engagement platform, meaning you can also use it to send emails. It's a tool called Apollo.io. I'm pretty obsessed with them. They also just added inbound lead routing. They do not pay me. So you can really trust that that is just a a from the heart recommendation. So let's talk about LinkedIn for a moment. So in the context of platform saturation, so certainly in the B2C world, we see Meta kind of being the default for many consumer brands doing paid media. Do you think we're seeing a similar dynamic play out in B2B with the maturation and perhaps saturation of LinkedIn? Or has LinkedIn kind of become this all-powerful outreach tool? in the B2B world? There is a lot of space for growth on LinkedIn still. So I certainly don't think that we've reached an apex of maturation or saturation with LinkedIn. They are constantly iterating. And what I am seeing is that LinkedIn's primary revenue source has always been jobs, recruitment, and they are making some very concerted efforts to create a knowledge economy and so they are trying to do more of that paid ads from the you know the broader community and not solely rely on the job posting and the the recruitment space for their income. So we're in the beginning of that. I anticipate that LinkedIn will continue to make it easier for creators to monetize on the app. I think that's going to be extremely interesting. And just for folks that maybe aren't like in the weeds on LinkedIn, right now it is very difficult for creators to monetize on the app. So you see platforms like Facebook, like TikTok, like YouTube that make it very easy to post your content, get ad revenue, get that inbound, almost like quasi-passive income flow. That's not the case today on LinkedIn. Uh, About a year ago, they did launch creator mode which was the first big step in making it easier to create. And I anticipate what they will launch next is getting paid to be a creator. And because B2B always is a few years behind B2C when it comes to things like evangelism and influencer marketing, I think a combination of that trusted peer community with evangelism, influencer marketing, community-led growth, more of a creator economy, I think those are all trends that we will see really grow on LinkedIn in the next like two to three years. You shared a post on LinkedIn called What I've Learned After a Thousand Days of LinkedIn Posts. I've read that post, by the way. For those that haven't, can you just share some of the takeaways for listeners who are interested 
in boosting their relevance, boosting their presence on the platform? For sure. The most important thing you can do on LinkedIn is be consistent. So I will just give you that very easy to action piece of advice. Often when I talk to people about why they aren't showing up on LinkedIn, it is that they either one, don't feel like they have the bandwidth to do it, or two, don't feel like they either have anything to say or that what they have to say is important enough. So let's nip the first one in the bud. If you only have the capacity to show up one time a week, just do that consistently. That tells LinkedIn that you're reliable, so they're going to push your content more, and it shows your community that they can depend on you to share content on a regular basis, so they're more likely to engage with what you're sharing. So consistency is king. And then the other point about having something to say or feeling that what you have to say is important, I get it. I was there before I started posting to get comfortable and to sort of find my own voice. I created a list of folks that I wanted to one day emulate and I just left comments on their posts. And leaving those comments helped me find my voice. It helped me get comfortable posting publicly, um, helped me get a sense for sort of what content was performing well and what types of conversations were being valued. And then I, I ramped that ultimately into then posting daily myself. But let me share with you that what you have to say does matter. Everybody has something they can teach somebody else. And nobody else has your unique lived experience and perspective. So even if there are a hundred other people talking about the same topic, literally nobody can talk about it from your perspective. And that's really powerful. So overcome that imposter syndrome. Your voice matters. Get out there, start posting and start doing it consistently. You raised something that I was going to ask you about at some point in this episode. This is this idea of imposter syndrome. So two years ago, you co-authored this book called Heels and Deals. Uh, first off, congrats. You go on to say that it helped you overcome imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome has been, let's say, a bit of a recurring topic on this show. What were you wrestling with and how does book writing help here? So imposter syndrome is really common. The data shows about 70% of people face imposter syndrome at some point in their life. So, I, you know, I'm not surprised that it's a recurring topic because I think it's like a very human topic to face that type of doubt. For me, the pivot was not keeping myself small, not being afraid of sort of sharing my stories, some of which were, you know, like it, it required a ton of vulnerability to share a lot of my stories, you know, many of which included like gender discrimination and sexual harassment and worse. And I think it was really scary to share those stories out loud and to believe that people would care. And what I found by sharing sort of small bits of that, you know, piece of my story, that the amount of people that were in my direct messages saying, oh my gosh, I see myself in your story. Oh my gosh, I was thinking about quitting sales altogether because I thought I was the only one this was happening to. Or, you know, I'm in a really toxic work environment or I have a boss that is sexually harassing me and, 
you know, I just thought I should tough it out. And your story gave me the courage to speak up for myself or to leave that toxic situation. So it was an evolution of sharing small bits of my story, seeing how much of an impact it made, realizing that people do care, and then getting courage to be more vulnerable, to like escalate the amount of vulnerability I was able to bring or willing to bring to my posts. And certainly writing the book was a part of that. But showing up and posting every day was a much bigger part of that. And I still don't bring my whole self to LinkedIn because it still does not feel safe for me to do that. Please, if you're hearing this, don't feel like you need to go from zero to 100. Like, protect yourself and share only what you feel safe sharing today. But do know that your story matters. That's an interesting perspective. You know, I think we're at an interesting time where vulnerability seems to be, you know, a buzzword and we're almost encouraged to be hyper vulnerable. At the same time, I think it could be the case that we share too much. We're sort of like the emperor with no clothes sort of idea. Do you feel like there's a healthy amount of vulnerability that should or perhaps shouldn't be shared? Yeah, I do. So like an example of vulnerability done right is maybe you are a cold call expert and you share an example of a time that you messed up a call. That's important because you are saying we all mess up, like you're giving other people permission to admit that they are also not perfect. And then that creates an atmosphere where we can learn and grow together. Right. So I think that there's the most important ways that I'm seeing folks share vulnerability is admitting that they're not know-it-alls so that we can all default to that like learn-it-all mindset. I think that's really important. So I think be vulnerable in the context of it's not helpful to pretend you're perfect because none of us are perfect and be vulnerable in the context of here are things that I didn't get right and here's what I learned from them and maybe by sharing those learnings, you can avoid some of my mistakes. But if it was up to me, I would be deleting some of the posts that people where they just go way, way too TMI. Let's shift gears to do some rapid fire questions. First one, what is the best CRM on the market for B2B SMEs? HubSpot. What is the biggest myth you hear in the sales industry? That salespeople by default are only and predominantly money motivated and without commission, we wouldn't work hard. Or care. Should there be an MBA in sales? Oh, I would love that. There are some programs, like I think ASU has one of the most highly recognized ones. Like it's happening. There are finally some sales programs, but oh my gosh, an MBA, what a delight that would be. Is SoulCycle better than Peloton? Yes. Why? I wish that people could have seen the face that I made when you asked that question, because it was just a face of disgust. Like, why would you even ask me that question? Okay, here's the rub, Adam. Different strokes for different folks. I do not like being yelled at when I work out. I do not like being in competition with other people or myself when I work out. That does not motivate me. I love being in a dark room with music blaring at SoulCycle and having somebody scream at me that I matter and I should take up space and I deserve this time. I thrive on the positive energy and the vibes when I work out. And that is soul cycle to a T. Got it. Do you think TikTok is a good place for B2B companies to hang out? 100%. 
what is the next platform that B2B salespeople gravitate to? Oh, man, platform launches have gone badly lately. Like Threads is already kind of not a thing. Lemonade, which was ByteDance's version of Instagram, did not go well. Clubhouse. Yeah, Clubhouse, which I at the time was like, this is not going to survive. And then because I am very passive aggressive, when I have predictions and people are like, you're wrong, I'm right. I set a one-year reminder in my calendar and then I note the names of the people that talk shit to me and then I go back with I told you some messages. So that's a little about who I am as a human being. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) Don't ask Leslie any tough questions on this podcast. Like, don't come hard at me unless you want me to remind you a year later that I was right and you were wrong. That's your Montana showing, I think. That maybe is. Yeah, it's uh, it's my little bit of my Montana background. Um, I still think it's TikTok. Uh I think TikTok is like we're still in the early adopter stage for TikTok as a B2B platform. There is a ton of opportunity to grow. And what I would say, especially about TikTok, is that there is just this incredible chance for B2B organizations to post for free, right? Like it's completely free to see what takes off organically and then to put ad spend behind that. And that opportunity to test content in such a low-risk way is powerful. So I would say TikTok still, not that it's a new platform, but I think it is grossly underutilized in the B2B space. Well, Leslie, thanks so much for the time. Sales Team Builder, obviously, is a great place to go. Heels to Deals, which is your book. Where else can people follow you on social and see what you're up to? Yeah. So find me on LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn top voice for sales. Um, That's just my name, Leslie Vanettes. And then I also have 30,000 some followers on TikTok. So you can find me there at Sales Tips Talk. Awesome. Great to have you. Thanks, Adam. It was great to be here. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on ElectroCast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. ElectroCast.